0: Just because I dump for basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kid.
1: Hello and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports and art. I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and my guest today is New York Times bestselling author, Andrew Marinus, who is also the Special Projects Coordinator at the Office of the Athletic Director at Vanderbilt University. Today's conversation features Andrew's book, Games of Deception, which focuses on the first Olympics where basketball was included as a sport. These were the 1936 Olympic Games, played in the heart of Nazi Germany during the regime's ascension. The games were used as a way for Nazis to show off and receive some validation from other world powers and individuals. And in the center of all of this, we have the founder of the game of basketball, James Naismith, traveling to Germany to watch the game played as an Olympic sport for the first time. This is a truly fascinating and relevant story. Please keep in mind that there was an ice storm in Nashville the day that we recorded, so if the sound breaks up a bit, I promise it won't last for long. And please don't forget to share, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you to Andrew for coming on, and thank you to you all for listening. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on a Saturday morning to talk about this wonderful book, Games of Deception, which is about the first time the Olympics included basketball as a sport. Um, which also overlapped with the Olympics being held in Nazi Germany in Berlin. Um, So I'm so excited to unpack this book. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Oh, thank you, Abigail. I'm excited to talk to you about the book. I loved writing it, and it's been a while since I've had a chance to talk about it with with COVID, you know, not getting (laughs) to travel around to, to libraries and schools and book festivals quite as much. So thank you.
1: And there is such, it's so interesting that you bring up schools because there is such this, there's a really powerful educational component uh, to this book that I think we can talk about a little bit later, how we look at current Olympics and where Olympics are being held and how the Olympics are run now. Um, but it's such a, important to have this document to kind of see what happened, see what happened before. And the book starts out in New York Harbor with the, the ship sort of leaving um, the port with all of the. Olympians having um, boarded and they're kind of headed towards Germany and there's this huge crowd seeing them off. It's this kind of patriotic scene. And then we go straight into uh, sort of what what awaits uh, these uh, athletes once they get to Germany. What What is the actual climate there? And so I would just love to talk a little bit about how you came to this story, how you arrived and sort of decided to to tell the story.
0: Oh, sure. So um, it goes back to my previous book, which was called Strong Inside. It was a biography of Perry Wallace, who was essentially the Jackie Robinson of the SEC, although in basketball. He was the first black basketball player in the SEC. And I wrote about him when I was a student at Vanderbilt uh, back in the late 80s. (laughs) Um, Perry had broken the color line in the SEC in the in the late 60s. And I wrote a paper about him for a black history class uh, 20 years after he had made history. Um, Perry was just a amazing man who went on to become a attorney for the Justice Department. He was a professor at American University uh, Law School, uh, where he was a colleague of uh, Congressman Raskin, who's been a key figure in the impeachment wow, trials.
1: Oh, what a crossover um, there. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And one of the trips I made to talk about Strong Inside was uh, to Lawrence, Kansas and uh, spoke at the Dole Institute of Politics there. Uh, I'd never been to Lawrence before, but being a big college basketball fan, the main thing I wanted to do on that trip was to see Allen Fieldhouse. and so I was able to do that. And a mutual friend of ours named Curtis Marsh, uh, who was-
1: <laughs> Yes, huge shout out to Curtis. We got to acknowledge uh, Curtis, yes. <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, the great guy was running the DeBruce Center, which is a great uh, facility next to the field house. And in the building there, they had James Naismith's original rules of basketball under glass. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the pieces <laughs> of paper from the 1890s. Um, and. Kansas had outbid Duke to in an auction to house these original rules of basketball. Of course, both schools wanting to claim that they are the home of, of basketball. Right. Um, and so when Curtis showed me those rules, he also showed me a picture next to it of James Naismith with the Japanese basketball player from the 1930s. And he said, hey, did you know the inventor of basketball was able to see his invention debut at the Olympics? Um, and I had no idea, you know, and I even consider myself a pretty big basketball fan, I love sports history, but I didn't know that Naismith was still around when when basketball, you know, first appeared at the Olympics, and I didn't know which Olympics it was either, so I asked Curtis, and he said it was the 36 Olympics in Nazi Germany, um, and so standing right there, looking at the rules is when the idea to write this book came, um, you know, first book about uh, sports and race. And I thought this would be an opportunity to write about sports and anti-Semitism and fascism. Um, and that's kind of the the niche that I'm trying to develop is, um, you know, sports and history and larger social issues. And I thought this fit the bill perfectly. So um, pretty much got started the, the next day uh, after <laughs> being there in, in Lawrence.
1: Wow. And I, I mean, I think that the sort of One of the the main events that that I know that I associated with the 1936 Olympics before learning about the the basketball um, was Jesse Owens, um, you know, being a star at the 1936 Olympics. And that being a way that, you know, the um, some kind of sort of empty, I mean, not empty for him, but the way a way the United States, you know, was able to to sort of. Uh, publicly push back on what was happening in Germany as far as th- saying we're better than them. Even though when Jesse Owens came home from from winning all these medals, he was he was not treated uh, better um, or equal to other right. to, to white people. Um, so I feel like that's what I had associated most with the 1936 Olympics prior to now knowing that it's the first Olympics where basketball was included and how those events kind of moved side by side.
0: Yeah, that was the case for me, too. Um, You know, and it was the challenge in envisioning how to write this book and actually writing it is that it's not like the 36 Olympics are unknown (laughs) to sports fans. You know, I mean, combine the Olympics and Hitler, like people are going to (laughs) know about that event. And a lot of people are familiar at least somewhat with with Jesse Owens there, maybe have seen documentaries about those Olympics or have read Boys in the Boat or Unbroken. Um, And so I knew that in some ways, um, as an author, that was good. I mean, there was already sort of proven interest in the subject, but also created a challenge of writing something that was different enough. So people felt like they were learning a new story. And going back to that first scene that you mentioned at the harbor in New York, uh, when all the Olympians and all sports are boarding the SS Manhattan to sail to uh, Europe for the Olympics, you know, that had been written about in those of their books as well. And so I was looking for something that was different. And one of the things I found was that there was a protester on the shore that hadn't been written about before. And I found this in an article um, from a New York paper at the time, talking about a man named Richard Reuterer, who was an American who had been held as a prisoner in Nazi Germany for almost a year, thought he was going to be um, executed and what he, all he was doing was taking notes about what he was seeing uh, happening in Berlin, you know, as a visitor there, but was imprisoned for that. And he was let out, um, I think, as kind of a PR move uh, by the Nazis uh, ahead of the Olympics. But anyway, he comes back to the United States and he's trying to raise alarms about what he saw in Germany. And he's, he's the one sort of exception to this patriotic Fourth uh, of July type of scene that you see at uh on the shore where he's got a banner that says boycott this land of darkness and fight for race tolerance democracy and peace and of course you could say that's what we end up fighting for in world war ii but um you know he was the lone voice and and that scene uh, at the harbor and of course it was too late by then for the u.s to boycott uh, but he is one of the last images that the athletes saw as they set sail for germany
1: Yeah, I think that that was such a – just like details like that that kind of uh, popped up um, throughout the book. I'm also remembering the – I'm just going to go to the actual book here. Um, Al Miller, who is a Holocaust survivor um, living in Cincinnati, that you were able to connect with, and he actually was living in Berlin at the time and snuck in to the Olympics to watch uh, the like different events, um, and you actually were able to have conversations with him about that experience, um, knowing you know he was a young kid, but what was happening in, in, Berlin, uh, you know, Germany at the time was that he was, he could tell even as a child that, that he was not, uh, welcome or safe.
0: Yes. I was so excited to meet, uh, Dr. Miller. I drove up, I live in Nashville and I drove up to Cincinnati. They have the, um, American Jewish archives in Cincinnati. And I knew that they had a recording of a rabbi in New York from 1934 or 35, um, where his sermon was all about why uh, it was immoral for the United States to participate in the upcoming Berlin Olympics. And that wasn't digitized. So I had to go to Cincinnati to listen to it. So while I was there, I mentioned to the archivist, you know, with project I was working on and they said, oh, you've got to uh, meet Dr. Miller. And um, he's 97 years old, um, lives in Cincinnati, obviously retired, but um, as you mentioned, he was a 13 year old kid in the time of the 36 Olympics. In Berlin, And he told me about what it was like to be a kid at that time, a Jewish kid living in in Germany, the way the country was changing, the way his friends or former friends at school were now bullying him, um, joining the Hitler, the youth. Um, But uh, Al went to the Olympics. He he said he remembered riding his bike to the Olympic Stadium. He said the first African-American person he ever saw was the fastest man in the world, Jesse Owens. Uh, He snuck into the Olympic Village. Uh, The next year after the Olympics, um, his parents could sense what was happening in the country and they wanted to save their son's life. So they sent him to the United States by himself at age 14. They're not sure if they'll ever be able to reunite with him. Uh, His father has two appendectomies that he doesn't even need as a way to hide in the hospital while the Nazis are looking for him at home. Uh, Meanwhile, his wife is looking for fake passports to get them out of the country. And they're able to do that and eventually reunite with their son. Um, you know. And then come back later in the book, and Dr. Miller is the conclusion of the story. Uh, at age 97, he still visits with high school kids and middle school kids in Cincinnati twice a month to talk about the lessons of the Holocaust. And I asked him, well, what, what do you tell these kids when they ask you, how do we make sure nothing like this ever happens again? And he said that the kids already know the answer and that they've already said it out loud that morning at school with the hand over their heart when they recited the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, And he said the most important thing we all have to remember are the last five words, which are liberty and justice for all. And that we see what happens when people say that, you know, freedom is only for some people and other people are are inherently unworthy of justice, you know, and the the hatred and the violence that that always leads to, which I thought was um, such an incredible message to be able to share from a Holocaust survivor that unfortunately is is too relevant um, today here in twenty twenty one. But but here is a man who was at those Olympics he's still around today to to share those those messages and those those important lessons.
1: It was a really incredible way to to uh, end the book and to also to, to read at this at this moment and after uh, the the insurrection that we had at the Capitol, um, which was you know a form of um bigotry hate and and nationalism so so relevant to what um, to what the conversations that we have right now about the news uh it's just it's really inc- I mean it's really upsetting and it's really yes. uh, incredible as well
0: well you know I was reading about the um, situation in Germany uh, prior to the Olympics and you know what was the environment that the athletes from the world were about to, uh, encounter when they got there and i found a feature article in the new york times uh, maybe a year before the olympics about joseph goebbels uh propaganda minister for hitler and the story wasn't critical of goebbels which was surprising to me in reading it and one of the quotes that goebbels had in the story was that in his country the truth was irrelevant you know um, and that good rhetoric was was not defined about whether it was true or not it was whether it got people to do what you wanted them to do. And if they did, then what you said was good and effective. And if people didn't follow what you said, whether it was true or not, then, it, then you know, that it was bad. And so, um, you yeah, I certainly see the parallels to that uh, society where to some people, the truth is irrelevant today. And, you know, I don't uh, make those direct connections uh, to present day In the book other than in talking to Dr. Miller Um, but I think you can easily see that (laughs) reading through the lines uh, when you read this book and that's what's uh, especially scary about it and but also I think um, the most relevant
1: yes and I think that there's this real sort of um, conflicting feelings in the book as far as you know the story of James Naismith being able to attend the, the the games the the first time basketball is featured on sort of a world stage, um at, at the Olympics that that he's able to attend those games because Fog Allen who was kind of his uh you know they had worked closely together even though Fog Allen was more of a, a valued coaching a little bit more than James Naismith that Fog right. Allen had had been at one point a, a student of James Naismith's I believe or uh, is that right?
0: He was a protege of Naismith, protege. for sure. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and,
1: yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and that he, um, even if they went there, you know, different directions professionally, uh, Fogg Allen raised, helped to raise all of this money to get James Naismith and his wife to uh, Germany to see these Olympics and what an experience that must have been for this individual. Whereas if we zoom out from that experience, we are seeing what that meant for the world to kind of see Nazi Germany validated on such a public stage um, by so, so many different countries. Um, And those two sort of conflicting events, I think, are really powerfully interwoven um, in the book.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I I do think it's interesting. I mean, it applies to all of us, I think, where there are these larger political questions that um, individuals may feel one way or the other about, but what personal decisions do they make within those broader uh, bigger questions i mean uh, even on the us olympic basketball team you had the first uh, uh well you had a jewish player named sam balter right. who becomes the only uh jewish american to win a gold medal at the olympics uh, he knew where he was headed for the olympics and and debated about whether he should go or not asked a lot of people for their opinions and eventually he kind of got tired of people telling him he shouldn't go you know and so like a lot of people he just essentially reacted to like stop telling me what to do. I, I, I'm going to go do it. You know, and, and he felt like the best thing that he could do knowing what he knew at the time. And, you know, you always have to remember, people didn't have the benefit of foresight, you know? um, So uh, he thought the best thing he could do was to go to Germany, perform well, and that would disprove, you know, notions of Aryan supremacy. The Owens had the same pressures on him receiving letters from the NAACP, Another black leader saying that, you know, discrimination anywhere was discrimination everywhere and that um, he should not go to Berlin for the Olympics. And just like Sam Balter, he believed that the best thing he could do was to, to perform well and through his personal excellence. That would send a, a political message. Um, Naismith, you can understand the inventor of a game, you know, uh, being able to go to the Olympics to see his sport played. I, I found some of his journal entries from his trip where he is both admiring uh, some aspects of the culture in berlin you know how uh, well things were run how uh, friendly people were to him but on the other hand he and he commented on the spirit of nationalism uh, that was there in the country um but and he also did note that there was something that was a little off-putting about that you know and he wondered if it was if it was going too far um He did bring home uh, a swastika, a Nazi flag that was presented to him at the Olympics, uh, which was just auctioned off uh, a few years ago. But he was presented with flags from all the countries that were participating in the Olympic basketball tournament. So maybe, um, you know, you don't know if he brought that home in an admiring way or if it was just one of the gifts that was given to him at the Olympics. One of the things I was surprised about in doing the research was just how much of a anti semite and supporter of the Nazi regime that Avery was, the head of the American Olympic Committee.
1: Yeah, he. I have to say, uh, I already thought, I already really did not think he was great before reading this right. book. I mean, he. Already, I mean, this is mostly <laughs> sure. from learning about the what happened at the nineteen sixty eight Olympics with um, yeah. Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Uh, this book really uh, just sh- shed a, a lot more light on sort of the evilness behind a lot of the decisions he made and and what a bigot he was
0: yes i went to his archives at the university of illinois and looked through everything i could find that was related to these olympics and one of the things i found was just um volumes of anti-semitic literature that he was subscribing to magazines and newsletters that he really wasn't even embarrassed to keep you know for posterity in his papers um And uh, letters that he was receiving, of course, there was a big debate in the United States prior to the Olympics about whether we should go or not, whether there should be a boycott. He was the leading proponent in favor of participating in the Olympics and um, was getting a lot of supportive mail. And, of course, you could say, well, he can't control what people write to him. But every time people wrote to him, signed Heil Hitler, Heil Brundage, he wrote complimentary letters back to these people, uh, which of course, and then he was coordinating even with, with Nazis um, trying to influence public opinion in the United States. And he would write letters saying, hey, you guys are getting all sorts of negative coverage in American newspapers. Can you send over some positive coverage of the Nazi regime to try to balance things out uh, so that the public will um, you know, be in favor of participation in the Olympics? And there were letter exchanges with actual with Nazis. And this is at the same time that Brundage is saying publicly in the American media that we had no right butting into the affairs of another country uh, that was hosting the Olympics, while he's actually encouraging the Nazis to interfere in an in American affairs. You know, in a, American news coverage.
1: Yeah, there's so many um, contradictions there, and just lies and uh, the propaganda um, and and sort of the tool of uh, misinformation and knowingly using that misinformation as as stated truth. Uh, it, w- it seemed so overwhelming um, at that time. Uh, gosh, yeah, it's just it's really um, incredible. And, and also what you're mentioning without. I mean, there's always people can always sort of like look back and look at historical events and, and how they connect to what we're experiencing now. But it's it is easy for me to say in this moment, oh, it's so logical what was happening. But I can't say that someone um, at that time might have felt the same way.
0: You know, you see the exact same thing happening from the exact same types of people. <laughs> you know, uh, sure. and the, the other point that I I, I make in the, in the book is that when the um, Nazis developed their Nuremberg laws, uh, which were the laws that stripped Jews of citizenship and um, determined, you know, like what how many drops of Jewish blood would qualify you as Jewish, that they they looked to the United States um, when they were developing those laws and sent Law students over to American law schools to study American race law, which they've considered the most racist laws in the world. uh, And that's what they were looking for. And in part, they um, based the Nuremberg laws after uh, what they learned in the United States, which was, you know, I know that that is becoming increasingly talked about, but I don't know that it had been written about in many sports books before. So I was uh, eager to um, tell that side of the story also. And that, you know, the places that these Americans came from on the basketball team, and we can talk more about you know who was on this team. But half the team came from McPherson, Kansas, and half the team came from Los Angeles. McPherson had been home to a significant Klan uh, presence. I have a picture in the book of KKK um, uh, parading through the the streets of McPherson, and in Los Angeles, uh, had deported. Uh, million uh, Mexican Americans who were actually American citizens. So, same types of things and, and hatreds that you saw in Germany at the time were were evident here in the United States.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's such an important point. I just read uh, "Cast" by Isabel yes. Wilkerson, and she she really, you know, from the beginning of that book is um, hammers home the fact that the the Nazi regime, the the sort of the thing that we say never again about, uh, took notes from from us, you know, uh, about the Jim Crow laws and about how segregation functioned in the United States in an effective uh way. Like it's just it's it's really an it's an incredible uh comparison to see laid out.
0: I, I agree and her book is terrific. Um uh, the source for me in writing my book, her cast wasn't out yet was um Hitler's American Model uh, by James Whitman, um, which really uh, explores this in depth, um, and I think it's you know, and especially when I speak to students about this book, you know that they're taught about World War II and the United States, you know, coming in to save the day. And I had two grandfathers that were in World War II, and of course, very proud of them and and what they did and what the country did. But you also can't ignore that prior to the war, there were a lot of people here in the country that supported Hitler, or maybe if they didn't express that, we're still acting um, in such discriminatory ways towards African Americans or Jewish people here in the United States.
1: Absolutely, um, and I think that that goes back to sort of the individual versus the system a little bit, like how those things can function um, separately sometimes. Um, at, you know, the 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 man who's protesting on the um, at the at the great send off for the SS Manhattan to head to Germany. There's that lone protester, and then also like you know your are Countries at war, and you and you sign up and and you fight, and then the narrative is pushed forward from there, and you're a part of that narrative. Um, and it's really hard to, I mean, it's just those those things. Just going back to like Naismith versus uh, the <laughs> the Nazi regime, and and how those things like sort of sit side by side. And even when I was with. You know i interviewed curtis for my podcast when i was in lawrence and he was saying how amazing it was for james naismith to get to go to the olympics and what a, what an incredible experience it was and how it was just great that canada his home country and
0: the united mm-hmm. states his
1: adopted country were playing against each other in the in the championship game and i was just wow that is just amazing and it wasn't until later when i was like what was that podcast that I listened to a while back <laughs> with the author who wrote about how, you know, the sort of the overlap between the first Olympics for basketball was featured and um and Nazi Germany hosting that Olympics and it was you on oh. <laughs> on the edge of sports and I was just like, okay. "Oh yeah, you know, I was so swept up in the moment when I was talking to Curtis like I'm I wasn't able to think critically about what was what else was happening then, yeah, and, and right. how and how did people um, feel feel comfortable taking part in that? Um, so it's just really, it's just there's there's so many moving pieces in the story. Yes.
0: Well, and another thing that kind of fits in that whole theme is the way that basketball was even uh, admitted as an Olympic sport. You know, and you talked about Fog Allen. He was, I would say, more than any other individual in the world uh, responsible for basketball appearing. In the Olympics had been something he had been pushing for for years prior to the thirty-six Olympics. Uh, he thought he was close to um, succeeding with the thirty-two Olympics in Los Angeles, um, but he was lobbying uh, athletic officials all over the world, including within the Nazi regime. Uh, there was a man named Fritz Swicki, who was a German uh, student who had come to an American basketball clinic at Springfield College and. Uh, Fog Allen was one of the instructors at this clinic. And he met this German kid, Fritz Sawicki. And Sawicki goes back to Germany and becomes an official in the Nazi youth organization. You know, so he's an insider. And uh, Fog Allen strikes out in 32 uh, with L.A., but now he's got a source, you know, inside the Nazi regime. And he um, works with Sawicki to sort of lobby the German Olympic officials to help— uh, Paved the way for basketball being included in the 36 Olympics. So again, another sort of uncomfortable uh, truth to sit with that we have the the Nazis to thank for uh, basketball being included as an Olympic sport for the first time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that uh, you know, Fog Allen was sort of collaborating <laughs> in that yes. way to to you know, and, and that the arena at the University of Kansas is is named after Fog Allen. He is a celebrated figure and. I'm not saying he shouldn't be, but this complicated, uh, sort of, um, I think complicated. I think complicated is a word that is used too often yeah. to describe people who <laughs> maybe have aligned themselves with terrible movements or or other terrible right. people. Uh, th- that he was willing to sort of sacrifice. Um, I don't even know, I'm not going to yeah. say Jewish people, but just that like w- collaborated with people that, that d- maybe did not share his values, but he, he considered it uh, valuable to him to push basketball forward in this way.
0: Right, it's a good question for all people. Uh, we hope we would make the right decision in those circumstances. But like, at what point do you, um, do you, where's the line for people? You know, I mean, he, he could have easily said, like, I've been trying for, for years to get basketball in the Olympics. Uh, the Olympics rewarded to Berlin prior to Hitler even coming to power, you know, um, and so uh, for him to say, this is about more than the the Nazis, this is about the sport that I love and its international growth. Um, on the other hand, you had the team at Long Island University, which was the best college basketball team in the country at the time of the U.S. qualifying tournament. And the way that the uh, American Olympic team was created in 36 was to play a tournament similar to like March Madness, which didn't exist yet at that time. Um, And they were going to combine the rosters of the teams that made it to the championship game to become the U.S. Olympic team. And this was open to the best amateur teams in the country, which at that time would have been college teams, YMCA teams, and AAU teams, which were sort of corporate or industrial league teams. Um, Long Island University, coached by Claire B., you know, a famous early basketball coach, had the best college team in the country. They would have been favored to advance to the finals and and become half of the Olympic team. Well, they took a vote as a team to boycott even the qualifying tournament, you know, as their protest of Hitler. And these guys' names have been lost to history, but I thought they took, they chose to make that principled stand that so many other people didn't, you know, um, and, and sacrificed their, a chance to participate in the Olympics and maybe win a gold medal—the first time that their sport was ever played in the Olympics—and so I thought it was important to tell their story, also include their pictures uh, in the book, and to list their names.
1: Absolutely, especially when we know that the players that ended up, you know, going there—they were sort of, I guess, not forced to participate in like. Nazi activities, but they were performing in uh, gymnasiums uh, or in stadiums where everyone was doing the hall Hitler at, at the same time. You know that there was like a whole s- – however many thousands of people uh, raising their arm in that way at the same time, like that they were um, – they were directly – Involved in sort of like that propaganda by participating, they were included in it, Um, and so this this team from Long Island, like making that making that choices, is 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 such a powerful thing and so important to emphasize that it wasn't just about playing basketball.
0: (laughs) It wasn't about playing basketball. They understood that, and so you know when people today, some people argue, well, sports and politics uh, shouldn't mix, right? Like, uh, uh, or that this is somehow new when athletes are speaking up on social justice issues, you know, I mean, go back to college basketball players, even in the 1930s that were uh, boycotting the Olympics. Um, You're right. The athletes who were there in Berlin, whether they supported the Nazis or not were part of the whole propaganda apparatus. That's the whole reason why Hitler um, supported having the Olympics at all was as, and that's why my book's called games of deception is that the whole, seen there was meant to deceive the world into believing that maybe what they had heard or read about the nazi regime wasn't true you know and that the city was was clean and people were friendly and the olympics were well run all that you know uh, everything seemed fine the american media was pretty much uh that worked on them you know describing how great the olympics were most of the visitors uh experienced it had a good time even sam balter the jewish player on the american olympic team later in life, did not regret that he had gone. Uh, He said that it was a a highlight of his life to get to play in the Olympics. Um, And so, and he's someone that certainly didn't support Hitler. Uh, There are other members of the team that were, uh, that fought in in World War II uh, and said that they wish they had known then uh, what they knew later. But just by being there, especially with the Americans just being there, that it gave Hitler what he wanted, some uh, international propaganda, but also important propaganda within within his own country where they're still trying to sort of solidify the support of the German people to show that, look, the whole world came here. You know, uh, if we were that bad, uh, no one would have come. Americans wouldn't have come. Uh, the other Europeans wouldn't have come. Uh, and so it, it achieved what they wanted from a propaganda um, value on, on both sides, both fronts.
1: Oh, it is so it's that is such a powerful thing. I mean, it's just so in, uh so destructive and so well planned out for this to for this event to to do that at the at the moment that this was uh really ramping up the the nazism was was um becoming so so powerful in germany
0: yeah that was that was what was most interesting interesting for me to um study as i was researching the book and to write about i think a lot of times at least for me i don't know about other people like when i read about the nazis it's it's a little further along you know mm-hmm. in, into yeah. the regime or you know it's, it's at the concentration camps, it's in world war ii but really the most uh, fascinating part for me was what what was the buildup like those early years 34 35 36 and how the culture was changing there how people were turning a blind eye to it how propaganda was used and of course that's what seems to be the most relevant uh, to our society today
1: Yes, and just thinking, um, speaking with you after this week where we had the some confusion about how all of this took place but that the Dallas Mavericks had not been playing the national anthem before their basketball games as no fans <laughs> were there. And then it seemed that it was reported that Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, was saying, we're not going to play it anymore. Um, but then he seemed to go later go on and clarify that um, – That wasn't the case that they were making, like, an all-out rule about that. But in the meantime, the NBA said all teams have to play the national anthem before um, games. And now we have the lieutenant governor of Texas uh, who's also (laughs) writing uh, something called the Star-Spangled Banner Protection Act. Um, It says – to ensure that the national anthem is played at all events which receive public funding uh so it's just uh this idea of patriotism nationalism the, what it means to um sort of believe in the and and care and support your country uh sort of i would say um kind of set into this uh i would say this is really a contradicting event to kind of like Require
0: so, yes, such, such against every...
1: <laughs> so so much performative uh, yeah. patriotism rather than actual patriotism, which I see think we see reflected in in maybe in more in what Colin Kaepernick has done rather than um, requiring people to play the national anthem. Um, so just how you know, just thinking about that in comparison to what was going on in Germany during this time that you describe with a lot of performative. Uh, patriotism, You know, flags and like the like the Hal Hitler and um, mm-hmm. the other things. It's like you're required to do this. You have to do this to prove X, Y and Z. And if we see you in the crowd not doing it or if you're doing something else or whatever it is, like you could be tracked down and killed potentially.
0: Yeah, you saw that. I mean, I agree with you on everything you just said. And I, I write about that in the book. Um, there were I found some oral histories of Americans who were there. Uh, at the Olympics, in some cases, they had friends who were German uh, and attended some of the events with them and talked about how, uh, you know, everyone was expected to stand and give the Heil Hitler salute and that the German uh, friend of these Americans didn't want to do it and asked to squeeze in, you know, really tightly between the two American women that she was there with mm-hmm. um, so that she would not be seen by the uh, the SS officers who were there uh, monitoring the crowd to see who wasn't giving the Hitler salute. And some uh, spectators were arrested on their way out of the stadium if they hadn't done it. Um, I found an interview with one of the wives of the American Olympians who said that as the U um, S Olympic team marched into the stadium and did not dip uh, the, the flag in Hitler's direction in his box, as they marched into the stadium, another, you know, of uh, performative, Uh, patriotism that all the other countries abided by that she was punched in the back by a German uh, spectator who was so offended that the Americans hadn't done that you know so whenever I see anything related uh, to the flag or to the anthem about requiring Americans to do certain things it it flies so in the face of uh, the the very notion of freedom (laughs) and if you're requiring it then really what kind of society is that and one example is it was a fascist society like we saw in Nazi Germany.
1: Yeah, abso- absolutely. And I feel like because this podcast, you know, Adam Silver is kind of at the center of it in many ways, like it is. And as a basketball fan, it's disappointing to me that the NBA wouldn't put out a statement saying differently. The, the NBA can't control what the lieutenant governor of Texas does, but the NBA can allow teams to make individual choices for themselves if they choose to. Uh, and they can, th- you know, that. That if if um, if the Mavs had actually decided not to do that and the NBA had supported them in that decision, if that was their choice, it could have changed the trajectory of how patriotism, quote unquote, uh-huh. and sports, professional sports are intertwined or actually beyond professional sports are intertwined in our country, um, you know, as far as like just providing another option. And it's just, I am, I am disappointed uh, that that was not the case, that the NBA immediately said, no, things are going to stay the way they are.
0: Right. And there's, there's nothing inherent about sports that requires a national anthem to be played. I mean, no more than movies or plays or book readings where the anthem isn't played. <laughs> you know, this is, it, uh, I don't know. It's, it's not inherent to the experience anyway. It's become a tradition, you know, I mean, Honestly, it's not a tradition that I mind when I go to a game, it's kind of like this last moment of of like reflection or just getting ready for the game. You know, like, I don't know, but I don't have to play the anthem. I think just any type of uh, tradition prior to the start of the game would, would be fine. Uh, and of course, you see the same people who are objecting to players who kneel or anthems not being played don't seem to mind uh an insurrection against democracy. So I mean, it's so hypocritical that it's just laughable.
1: Yeah, that Venn diagram is really strong between the people yeah. who critique the protesters, <laughs> the 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 athletes who are protesting, and and also, um, you know, put a hung a there were gallows outside the Capitol building. <laughs> like right. it's just uh, it's it's it is uh, really insane to wrap your head around what our different perceptions of patriotism uh, are, essentially, or what they, what I believe they should be. Um, I really want to get back. I do want to get back to the team, the actual <laughs> Olympic team. There's so much here uh, that played at, in in Berlin. Um, and you, you gave us a little bit of information about how, how that team came to be and how it was made up. Um, but just also that the game wasn't really – uh, of course, this was the first time it was being played, but it didn't really get the same treatment as maybe other sports got that were more longstanding in the Olympics. And they actually played outside uh, in the rain, in the championship game. its I mean, the way you described it, it sounded like football, but maybe with a different, like the hoop, the goal <laughs> was just like a different shape, you know, because it was just <laughs> a lot of, um, they were unable to dribble because of how much water was really on the court.
0: That's right. So, uh leading up to the Olympics that I found some of the press releases that the German uh, Olympic committee was sending out around the world, bragging about the, the, the open air basketball tournament, you know, and how this would be a beautiful thing to play uh, in fresh air under the sunlight. And so they converted some clay tennis courts into basketball courts for the tournament uh, and looking at pictures of some of the early round games uh, and all these guys had grown up playing outside, you know, in a driveway or in a barn you know like uh, like almost everybody does so it wasn't unusual for them to play outside but certainly to play a, a regulation game or olympic game uh the americans thought that was kind of uh, funny that they had to play outside um there weren't many fans there you could walk up and and stand along a rail in the front row if you wanted to, to watch the first olympic basketball tournament um but then the medal round games which took place on the exact same day and exact same time as the famous boys in the boat uh, crew competition. And that's where the attention of the world was. That's where Hitler was. That's where the international radio broadcasters were. It was at the crew competition to show the difference in priorities in sports back then. Nobody was really paying attention to basketball and it was pouring down rain. Like you mentioned, the, the the, the clay tennis court became a big mud puddle Players couldn't dribble. The ball just gets stuck in the mud. They talked about sliding around, you know, like, a, like you imagine a football game at Lambeau Field or something, you right. know, like through these big mud puddles. The ball is so waterlogged that they can't really shoot it. Um, American players had hoped to show off this game to the world that was still um, not really that popular in Europe at the time. And yet they, they said that, that this uh, gold medal game was really a joke. It was U.S. versus Canada uh americans won 19 to 8 which was a really low scoring game even for those days um and this team which was made up of players half from kansas half from los angeles uh, they alternated the games that they were able to play in there were 14 players on the team they didn't realize until they were on the boat to germany that only seven would be able to suit up for any individual game and so essentially alternated the games they played in the team from uh, los angeles had won the US championship in that qualifying Mm -hmm. tournament. So they felt like they had the right to play in the gold medal game. But the tournament started with a forfeit. The Americans were supposed to play Spain in the first round of the Olympic tournament, but the Spanish team went home because the Spanish Civil War broke out on on the eve of the Olympics. And so the very first US Olympic basketball game was a win by forfeit. And it threw off the alternating schedule of the two teams, essentially the two American teams that were there. And so the team from Kansas, which had a really um, strong-willed coach, he wasn't going to change the order of games they played in. Right. He wanted the attention. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And so they were the ones that got to play in the gold medal game, the the runner-ups from the uh, U.S. qualifying tournament. And they were the only ones that were able to go to the medal ceremony and receive their gold medals uh, in Germany. The players from L.A., had to wait till they got back to the U S and for their medals to arrive in the mail, they weren't even invited to watch the medal ceremony in Germany.
1: Wow. And you mentioned earlier that the Nazi flag that Naismith received, uh, from, from the Nazis, (laughs) um, Uh it was among many other flags that he received from other countries, um, showing their appreciation, but that it was auctioned off recently.
0: Yeah, I was, um, you know, researching everything I could about this book and, or for this book, and found um, some auction entries of of Nathan's personal items, uh, his diary that uh, he kept on the trip, uh, some of the the flags and programs and mementos, postcards he had written back home, some of which were sent on the Hindenburg uh, back to the United States. Um, And there was a, a collector in Canada who purchased most of those items would not share them with me uh, for research purposes for the book, but there were a number of photographs of pages of the diary. Some of the diary had been written about in a um, sort of an oral history type of uh, document that one of Naismith's children had written at, at one time. And so I was able to piece together a lot of the diary in in other ways, but I, re- I really wanted to see it for myself. but. Um, This collector, I wasn't willing to share it, which I guess I understand. It was interesting looking at some of the material. I was able to interview some of the descendants of the players. All the players had passed away, obviously, by the time I was working on this book. Um, But their sons and daughters kept various things that their dads brought back from the Olympics. there was a lot of uh, Nazi propaganda material that was left in the dormitories at the Olympic Village. Uh, and so some of the guys had brought that back. They took snapshots while they were there. And there's some pictures of them that I included in the books, just sort of horsing around with the Nazi soldiers that were there yes. at the Games. And you could tell that they really either didn't pay attention, didn't understand, didn't care. Uh, but, you know, they were, they were mingling and having fun with these guys. Um, at the olympics no doubt
1: yeah that that was those were really interesting uh to see those photos um presented in the historical context and and i mean i I think yeah there's probably people as there are today that aren't following the news that much or thinking about you know (laughs) just like they're there and they're just like this is my experience And this you know i'm not they're not thinking about it in like this broader broader sense right Uh, yeah um I want to mention that uh, it, it's hard to not look at these Olympics and think about, you know, that the 2022 Olympics are going to be held in China, where we know that there are there is a genocide taking place. There are concentration camps and uh, re-education camps and, and things like that. And, you know, that uh, what we saw in the... Olympics, and I think for the um, the men's World Cup uh, in uh, Rio, with with just neighborhoods being demolished in order to build stadiums and uh, different structures for the Olympics, um, so that uh, even though the Olympics can has the potential to be this this beautiful event, bringing uh, bringing different countries together from all over the world and different people, and a wonderful place for like individual accomplishments to sort of shine, uh, it also there's this like continued dark side uh, of of the Olympic uh, committee making deals with countries that are that are doing terrible things.
0: Um, yeah, I agree. It's not just a case to say, well, this was something that happened at the thirty six Olympics that has never happened again, right? Or or that, uh, that won't happen again in the future in terms of the Olympics being used for international propaganda and, like you said, the human rights violations that that maybe are. Covered up in the in the broadcasting of the Olympics, or that are perpetrated in the name of the Olympics. Um, my day job is uh, at the Vanderbilt Athletic Department, and we have a program called the Sports and Society Initiative, where we look at issues related to race and sports and politics. And we had a series two years ago on looking at the Olympics from different angles. You know, in the sort of the heroic stories that have emerged from the Olympics you know, here in Nashville, the Tennessee State Tiger Bells. And Wilma Rudolph, you know, and this great uh, black women's track team that um, was the best team in the world and celebrating that. But on the other hand, we had um, a professor from New York, Chris Gaffney, who came in and talked about um, the Olympics as just, you know, this incredible machine of human rights violations, especially focusing on uh, Brazil. We had the general counsel from the U.S. Olympic Committee talking you know clearly about the um sort of the more patriotic and uh, heroic aspects of some of the individual olympians um i think myself i feel a little bit like a hypocrite or um ambivalent the same way i do about football you know um understanding on one hand the cte and the long term health effects on players on the other hand you know can't wait till the next packers game you know as as a packers fan um the Olympics. I enjoy watching the sports um, and some of the human interest stories there are truly incredible. Um, on the other hand, all of the, uh, on one hand, the denial that politics is even a part of the Olympics by some people is is laughable. And then the, um, the way that the Olympics are used by uh, regimes, uh, the, the question of whether the world should show up there and just like they did in berlin sort of lend some support or uh to that regime by even being there i, I totally get that understand that but uh, you know I, to be honest like i still turn on the olympics and watch it mm-hmm. <laughs> um so i think it, it's it's a really tough question and I'd be, i would be would want to say you know of course we shouldn't go to china of course individuals should use their power by turning off the tv or not paying attention but It's one of those things just, I think, in real life that um, I don't know. I I know I don't live up to maybe my ideals on that because I I still watch. It's really hard to turn away.
1: I I totally understand. I mean, first... I mean, I wouldn't say first and foremost, but uh, absolutely like huge sports fan over here um, mm-hmm. who who just wants them to be better, you know, who, who wants them to do better because I, I love I love watching them, especially basketball. And so this idea that, you know, I'm really disappointed in the NBA this week. And I'm also thinking, ah, oh, this Phoenix Suns just released that new, their new <laughs> color scheme, their new logo for their um, yeah. city edition. I want a yeah. Phoenix Sun shirt. Like, you know, it's just, <laughs> I, I haven't bought one yet, but it's just this, um, sort of reconciling yeah. uh, those feelings together, and then just like putting your best foot forward when you have the knowledge, which of course uh, right. you've done with this book. And um, but I think I think oh, there's much more ground to stand on for critique when you are a fan, uh, when, you ca- when you care mm-hmm. when the, you care about we yeah. when you care about the games, when you care about the uh, the players, and and what happens. You also. Um, it just it's 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 much better than, you know, sort of the rolling the eyes. Oh, what does it matter? It's just sports or whatever, you know. So right. I think that that right. um, is important. And and when I when I call out China, I also just want to mention, like, the human rights uh, issues that the United States has, you know, maybe not to that sure. specific extent that what's going on in China, but also that I'm not saying, oh, we should be hosting the Olympics every year instead. Like that there's right. there's plenty of there's just that that when we um the process of how the Olympics uh, gets sort of awarded to different places, I don't think, calls for a lot of self-reflection by that country to to make themselves better. Uh, I would say historically.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say that you know, uh, just you know, so I think the most important thing is to acknowledge these issues and to talk about them. And you can still participate in the world of sports as a fan or a podcaster or as an author. It's just like we're talking about with. Patriotism also criticizing uh, the deficiencies of a country or of a a political movement doesn't make you unpatriotic. And in most ways, it makes you more patriotic, you know. Um, And so it's the same thing as a sports fan, noticing the flaws, um, but continuing to exist uh, in that world, I think, are compatible, just trying to to, um, make things better. Um, And so that's, I think, the comfort that we can take.
1: As always, I am happy to share that this episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. Bookman's has lots of wonderful things going on right now, including featuring the work of local artists Sombreros and Sparrows at their Midtown store here in Tucson. They have a virtual studio night with Cactus Clouds Art and the Desert Nights Rising Stars Writers Virtual Conference at ASU. And you can actually pick up your own copy of Games of Deception at Bookman's. Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more, and is a wonderful community-oriented store where the shelves are stocked with items brought in by the community. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. And Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling and trades. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and details about events and to find your nearest location. And remember, Bookmans has cool covered. And one thing I really want to touch on before uh, before we end is just the this Palace of Justice where the actual <laughs> um, hangings of Nazi officials took place. This is in this is after the Holocaust, after World War II, um, October sixteenth, nineteen forty six. You write about uh, these uh, these officers that have been sentenced to death. Um, and, and the Americans, I believe, are still occupying this this building. Yeah. Maybe maybe you can jump in here um, and tell the <laughs> tell the full story because it's so it was such a powerful place to end to
0: end., oh, I'm so happy you mentioned that. Uh, I don't get a chance to talk about this scene very often. But in doing the research, it was sort of one of those moments where I was like, "Ah, I've got something great for the book. You know, um, and I was reading about the aftermath of World War II and the um, Nuremberg trials and the Nazi leaders that were to be executed after the trials, and they're being guarded by uh, American soldiers um, at the Nuremberg Palace of Justice. And uh, these American guards are listening to the World Series on the radio. uh, And um, there's a gymnasium uh, there at the palace also. And every day, the guards, the American guards, play basketball games in this gym. Um, And so uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, here I've written a book about basketball... um, debuting in the olympics in germany and these americans after the war are playing basketball then i continued reading and found out that when the americans had to figure out where are we going to hang these uh nazi criminals who have been convicted at nuremberg they decided to do it on the basketball court (laughs) and they hung uh big black drapes uh from the backboards erected the gallows uh, right next to it and as um one by one as they hung the nazis they would Move, and this is maybe a little gruesome discussion for a podcast, but they would move those dead bodies behind the basketball hoops, behind these um, big black curtains. And so I kind of made this connection that uh, international basketball made its debut in Nazi Germany, and Nazi Germany made its, uh, you know, some symbolic death was on Mm -hmm. a basketball court.
1: Yeah, it, it's um, it was a, a very heavy, you know. And then afterwards, you you mentioned this the the experience you had meeting Al Miller, um, who who was the the Holocaust survivor who was a child at the time. And so I, I think that was just such an interesting point, but also to have at the end of the book of sort of how how things ended that period of time, um, and, and how basketball was still present. Uh, basketball in was still way. present. Yeah. Yes.
0: And then uh, I don't know if we talked about this before we started recording or not, but another connection was Frank Lubin, who was um, a member of the U.S. team, whose parents were Lithuanian. After the Olympics, uh, he's invited to visit the country of Lithuania and really sort of introduce the game there. Yeah, he's, he's considered the father of Lithuanian basketball, and the um, the guys that he teaches the game to in Lithuania. As they grow older, become coaches uh, in the Soviet basketball system. And in 1972, when the Olympics returned to Germany for the first time and the United States does not win the gold medal for the first time in that really controversial game, the coaches on that team and some of the players on that team um were Lithuanian and had really sort of they they all knew who Frank Lubin was. So right. there's even connections between the first American Olympic team and the first American team to 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 not win the gold uh, in that really uh, landmark game in Munich.
1: Yeah, it's just like sort of pushing all of it uh, forward, and I know that uh, for a lot of my artwork, I've definitely you know for a while I was just collecting basketball nets as kind of records of what had happened on that court. That the like the net holds all the all the highs, all the lows, all the things that had taken place, and so just to think about those those hoops, um, you know, sort of witnessing those the the sort of state mandated death of those those nazi officials
0: yes yes wow that's really fascinating if, if these nets could talk huh? <laughs> yeah if these
1: nets could talk uh you mm-hmm. know i lived in baton rouge when alton sterling was shot uh in okay. 2016 and that was right in the middle of, of this project i was doing collecting nets and there was a school like a block and a half from the, the store the parking lot where alton sterling had been killed and uh you know if i had been on that court when he was uh, Kel, mm-hmm. I, I would have you would have heard something. you would have heard like a commotion um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then mm. the nets heard that, uh, that wow. and then you know I, I I have one of those one of those nets um and uh oh. that that so just the 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 sort of structures, the court the 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 hoop kind of like bearing witness um and and, and holding on to that information um, oh that's fascinating
0: uh, <laughs> I have a, a rim that tells a story um. So my book about Perry Wallace, uh, the first black basketball player in the SEC, he also was a part of the first um, black high school in Tennessee to play in the uh, integrated state tournament. Okay. And they went they went undefeated that year and won the state tournament in Tennessee on the very same day as the famous Texas Western uh, Kentucky college basketball championship game. Um, It was a mirror image. Uh, Perry's all-black team beat an all-white team from Memphis to win the um, state tournament. And uh, the class of 1965 at Pearl High School um, just loved this this important team that had accomplished so much um, in civil rights in Tennessee. And in one of the games, uh, Perry and two of his teammates all went up for a a rebound at the same time, a putback dunk, and they ripped the rim off the backboard. Um three powerful guys up there before sure. breakaway rim. Yes. Right? so <laughs> uh, this rim was saved uh, for years and it was presented to Perry uh, in celebration of the history that he had made um, decades later and and Perry um, gifted it to me. And so I, I have this rim in my house that really tells a story of of basketball and racism and civil rights uh, in the south. And so it's really fascinating to think about what that rim, might have seen also just like those nets you're talking about
1: what an amazing gift what an important gift (laughs) that's pretty incredible there's a
0: there's just kind of a a simple human explanation for why he gave it to me uh he was flying back to washington dc after that event and 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 it only was flying southwest and only had carry-on luggage (laughs) and he didn't want to take a rim on an airplane Uh,
1: those airlines (laughs) like they'll screw you over every chance they get So you're kind of like uh, uh, Minding it right now yeah, <laughs> Like he could ask for exactly it back yeah. eventually Yeah.
0: will <laughs> go back, Perry has passed away But it's going to oh. go to the um, museum uh, At his old high school okay. at Old Pearl High School They have a great museum celebrating the whole history of that school Back to the 1800s
1: Wow, that's awesome, that's so cool yeah. uh, Those objects that carry that Carry the the, the weight of history uh, It's really, really important to acknowledge those mm-hmm. um, So Thank you so much, Andrew, for, for making some time to talk about uh, Games of Deception.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Let me know if you're ever in Nashville or if there's ever anything I can do for you. And I'll definitely let you know next time I'm up that.
1: All right. Sounds good. Well, take care. Stay safe. Stay warm. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Sounds good. Bye. Bye.